0: Well,
1: good afternoon everybody, I wanna welcome you. I am Peter Russo, I'm the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute, and I wanna thank you all for coming today. Uh, This is a Capitol Hill briefing entitled Obstacles to Organ Donations, The Dire State of Kidney Transplantation. Uh, Before we begin, if you're watching via the live stream and would like to join the conversation, we'd love to hear from you, so please tweet comments and questions to us at hashtag CatoEvents. Further this spring, the Cato Institute released the eighth edition of the Cato Handbook for Policymakers, Copies were available on the table as you came in. And if you'd like more, please contact me after the program. Uh, Meanwhile, fully searchable PDFs are available at Cato.org. And while there's no chapter dealing specifically with liberalizing Oregon markets, there are a number of pages at Cato.org going all the way back to 1998. So we've had some involvement in this issue for many years. Um, And with that, I wanna introduce Cato's visiting fellow, Ike Brandon. At Cato, Brandon focuses on fiscal policy, tax reform, and regulatory issues. But perhaps he has a more familiar face on Capitol Hill, having held many positions in the Congress, including chief economist at the House Energy and Commerce Committee, the Republican Policy Committee, as well as the Joint Economic Committee. Further over the course of his career, he's also served in the Office of Management and Budget and the U.S. Treasury, as well as at a host of notable free market organizations, including the American Action Forum. Uh, Widely published in top periodicals and news outlets, Brandon has a Ph.D. in economics and from Indiana
2: University. And with that, let's welcome my friend, Ike Brandon. (laughs) Thanks Pete, I I appreciate it and uh, thank you everybody for uh, coming here today. Um, Let me just give you a minute or two on the background of this issue and then I'll turn it over to our esteemed speakers. Um, Right now we have a very critical shortage of uh, kidneys available to be uh, transplanted. Uh, Just for some context, there are over uh, half a million people currently on dialysis. And 100,000 of these, or a little bit more, are on a waiting list to uh, receive a kidney transplant if a kidney were to uh, become available. Um, African-Americans are three times more likely than uh, whites to uh, have kidney disease. Uh, Native Americans and Hispanics are 50% more likely. So this is a disease that disproportionately affects minorities. Um, What's more, we have... uh, this waiting list of over 100,000 people we only do about 17,000 kidney transplants a year Uh, somewhere between five and seven thousand people each year die awaiting a uh, kidney and even for those who don't die being on uh, dialysis is very uh, debilitating and stressful and precludes doing a lot of normal everyday activities so uh, and and what's more, looking at it from a fiscal perspective, uh, dialysis is enormously expensive to the federal government. Uh, since the early 1970s, the federal government pays via Medicare for the uh, dialysis costs of anyone whose insurance does not cover it, and the government spends upwards of $50 billion a year on dialysis. So uh, <clears throat> coming up with a system that would increase the number of kidneys available would... Uh, improve the life of uh, hundreds of thousands of people, and save the government uh, lots of money. So it's really, I think, an appropriate time to, to look at ways to, uh, to fix this very critical problem that I think has gone under the radar, uh, certainly in Capitol Hill and uh, the White House. So uh, Cato has assembled an esteemed uh, panel of experts on this to tell us a little bit about uh, this issue. And so let me just give you a brief introduction of each of our speakers. Keith Melanson, MD, he is the Director of the GW Transplant and Executive Director of the Ron and Joy Paul uh, Kidney Transplant Center. He's one of the world's leading experts on uh, kidney transplantation issues, and he's spent a lot of time thinking about how to increase, uh, in particular, how to increase access for minority patients. Uh, Next to him on his right is Sally Sattel. Sally is also an MD a psychiatrist and lecturer at Yale, as well as a, a senior fellow at uh, AEI. Uh, she also is a recipient of, a, uh, of a, a kidney donation herself. She's written a lot about this. In fact, she even has a book out talking about the issue of uh, finding more kidneys for people with kidney disease. To the far right, uh, my friend Kurt Schuler. Uh, Kurt is a good Samaritan kidney donor. He donated it uh, to someone he did not know uh, back uh, three years ago. Uh, Kurt's also a uh, a former Hill staffer. He uh, spent a number of years at the Congressional Joint Economic Committee. Uh, We overlapped there briefly. Uh, He currently uh, works for uh, the Department of Treasury and has co-authored or authored a uh, a dozen books. And finally, uh, we have, uh, to my immediate right, we have Jeremy Marcus. Jeremy Marcus is uh, Deputy Chief of Staff and Legislative Director for uh, Congressman Matt Cartwright of Pennsylvania who has uh, sponsored Who sponsored legislation in the last Congress to uh, look at addressing this issue and they've also uh, are contemplating doing something on this issue. So uh, we'll begin with uh, uh, Dr. Melanson and we'll go on and then uh, Jeremy will uh, conclude our panelists and then we'll take some questions. So Keith. Okay.
0: Thank you, Ike. Um, it is my pleasure to be here this afternoon um, to give you guys a little bit of an insight of what you know I deal with every day. Um, as uh, Mr. Brandon said, I am a transplant surgeon, so I actually perform transplants. I also do uh, donor nephrectomies, which are the is the operation that's done when someone donates a kidney for a live donor transplantation. Um, First, let me tell you what the issue is. The issue is, you know, as uh, Mr. Brannon kind of mapped out, we have a great operation. And let me tell you, I, I absolutely love what I do. I, I get to operate on um, uh, Good Samaritans, like the gentleman on the end there. Um, I really get to deal with the best part of mankind, donors, be it deceased donors, be it live donors, people that need transplantations. It's, it's really a labor of love. But the problem is we don't nearly have enough of this extremely rare and valuable commodity. Um, when transplantation first started, you um, needed to be on the list a few years, you got transplanted usually from someone in your family, and then everything um, got a lot better for you. Uh, dialysis is a great option, it keeps people alive. Before the 1960s, if you had kidney disease, you went to sleep and you never woke up again. So. It's true that we need dialysis and it's awesome, keeps people alive, but it is not a good quality of life and it's not a good length of life. You know, the major thing, you know, patients always talk about not wanting to go to dialysis, it's inconvenient, on and on and on, but what I always bring them back to is their life expectancy is vastly shortened once they develop in stage kidney disease. So how do you elongate their lives? Well, the only way to do that reliably is to get them transplanted. There are over 100,000 people on that list, but currently, most of those people will never be transplanted. We are, just in the last few years, we have gotten to a point where most of the people that are on the transplant list are gonna die before they can get transplanted. So how do we deal with that huge gap? We have over 100,000 people on the list, we do about 17,000 transplants per year. The only way to deal with it is, we have to increase the number of donors. I do transplant every day. We're always pushing the envelope. We have, um, u- we're utilizing very young donors, including very small children, including very old donors. We will go all over the country looking for donors after death, but it's still not enough. The only way to do that in this country would be to have more live donors. Now, how do we get more live donors? I, I think the Congressman's bill is a great first step because what we need to do, this is what we do in academia, we debate things, we study them, and we try to get good, sustainable um, information as to try to figure out what is a good um, incentive or at least how do you get rid of the disincentives in trying to get people to be live donors. I can tell you a little bit about the disincentives. I, um, Washington DC is a perfect dichotomy, right? You have the wealthiest, most educated place on the planet, but then in some areas of DC, uh, you have very poor access to care. I have patients from all all parts of the city. And I will tell you, it is much, much, much more difficult for a poor person to get a live donor, because after all, your donor is going to be someone that's either in your family or they're going to be in um, your friends or in your circle of influence. And when you're poor, those people are also poor. And they disproportionately are gonna have problems that would, number one, from a health point of view, disqualify them from being donors because of high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity. And then number two, you know, it's very difficult to be able to get off of work for you know, upwards of a month in order to be a donor. That's relatively easy for people in your, at your level, um, but it's very difficult for a guy who, you know, works as a manual laborer. So th- there is the rub, right? We don't have enough donors, and we don't have enough donors for the people who disproportionately need them the most, because kidney disease, although it affects everyone, it disproportionately affects the poor, it disproportionately affects the, um, the minorities, in this country so we need to figure out how to be able to get more live donors for this population and it's going to benefit all of society because it is exceedingly expensive to keep people on dialysis. Not just the I guess it's about $88,000 per year um, to keep someone on dialysis. Also, they drop out of society in many ways. They're not working, they're not contributing to society in in the best way possible. So it's, from my point of view, it's a win-win if we could figure out a way to get more people live donors. When you compare what type of kidney, a person can get, in other words, getting a deceased donor kidney versus a live donor kidney. I can tell you from a physician point of view, people that get live donor transplants tend to stay in the hospital a shorter period of time. They tend to get to, um, uh, get back to full convalescence quicker and get back to work quicker. So it's the best type of kidney to get as well. So for all of those reasons, we would like to try to increase the number of live donor transplants in this country. For the number of people that we have on um, the wait list, we really should be doing about um, almost twice of what we're doing currently. We, have the, we definitely have the infrastructure to do it. We have the hospitals. We have the expertise. We have the surgeons. Um, we just need more donors, and that's why I'm here today, and I'm happy to um, answer your questions, and I guess that, that's going to be at the end, right? Thank you.
2: Uh, Sally?
3: Sure, I'm going to sit here. Okay. Um, thanks again for for all for coming. Um, so, as as Ike mentioned, um, I was on the other end of the uh, of the operating table, and I I got a kidney. In fact, I got two. I got one in 2006, and one in one last summer. And um, and it, but it was that first experience that back in 2006 that really galvanized me about this issue and the shortage. Um, and it wasn't the surgery, it was the search for a donor. Uh, now, I was very lucky in the end, although it was kind of a long and tortured search, um, uh, a friend did uh, help me out, <coughs> I, I mean, a, a glorious human being, someone I wasn't even that close to. So I'm eternally grateful to her for sure, um, I didn't have any uh, family who could do it. so. Um, so she did it. Basically, she saved me. She spared me dialysis, which, as you've heard, is it It does keep people alive for a while, but it is a guarantee of premature death and a fairly poor quality of life. And um, of the 98,000 people who are waiting for a kidney uh, right, right now, and the, the, the total wait list is 120,000, um, uh, the majority of them will get a, a, a kidney fr- from a deceased donor, and they will wait and wait and wait to the point where 12 of them tomorrow at this time will die because they couldn't survive that wait. So um, so I got one kidney, as I mentioned, um, in 2006, and another from another friend. I mean, I, I'm running out of earthbound saints here. And um, so I'm a poster girl for altruism, clearly, but I'm not that starry-eyed about what isn't just the most glorious virtue on earth, to say that uh, that should be our policy. And in fact, that is our policy. The um, 1984 National Organ Transplant Act has enshrined altruism as the sole legitimate motivation for receiving uh, a kidney. And that means that anyone who gives anything of so-called valuable consideration, money, a car, a vacation, um, to someone who needs a kidney, and that person, who, or any donor, or any organ, and that person who accepted this valuable consideration could a- actually could, could be uh, prosecuted for a felony that would be a $50,000 fine and or five years in prison. So um, was, the topic of this is obstacles to organ donation, and uh, I would say that our current law is actually posing a considerable uh, obstacle to that. Our ban on... Uh, the ban against enriching donors. Now, I'm not talking about uh, the need for a classic free market. Some have, that's certainly not where I'm going, but uh, I uh, believe that it's time uh, that we um, think about ways to incentivize people to donate, both living and deceased, and I can talk briefly about two kinds of models, uh, in order to increase the supply, to reward people who are willing to save the life of a stranger, and we've gone to this point because since 1987, which is effectively when UNOS went into effect, we, we have tried everything. We've tried educating people about the need. we people sign their organ donor cards. Um, now we have tax um, some tax forgiveness for expenses that uh, that um, donors encounter. And as um, Dr. Mel- Melanson said, um, you know, a poor people are not even in a position to. Um, to, to uh, uh, afford the time off uh, for, to even be a donor if they wanted to. Uh, we, we've tried everything. Uh, we've gotten better, and we have gotten better at getting uh, at emergency rooms and solicitation of, uh, of deceased uh, the families of deceased people to uh, give their uh, loved ones organs. We even have swaps and chains, which I'm sure you've heard of, which are brilliant innovations. But again, they've just provided about 500 new organs last year, every one of them precious, but 500 out of 98,000 <laughs> is not, it's not a, a, a policy. So um, here's a general idea, again, rewarding people who are willing to save the life of a stranger. Um, I strongly believe this is something we should study. I'm just going to outline a, a particular model. Um, what kinds of ways could we reward people? Well, how about a tax credit? How about a contribution to a retirement account, or a tuition voucher for their kids, or a tuition voucher for themselves if they're in graduate school, uh, or loan forgiveness, or um, a donation that they could forward to a charity of their choice. We'd use the same allocation system that exists now, you know, through UNOS. It's basically first. It's first basically a first come, first serve uh, kind of system. Um, Obviously, people would follow the traditional uh, uh, procedure now, which is to be enormously well-informed. Even if you wanted to give a kidney to me tomorrow, it would take us three months because they build in a lot of, and I think rightly so, build in a lot of uh, time there for you to really think about it, you know, for people to really understand what they're getting into, what the surgery is about, will there be any, what kind of side effects they may have, what kind of lasting impact that might have, make sure they're not pressured into it. You know, it's really a... Decision they're making after they've thought it through, of course all those protections would continue to be in place. Uh, who would pay for these rewards? And uh, there's a general consensus that the value would be around fifty thousand. That's just a consensus, um, but that could all come easily from the dialysis savings. And as you said, it's about ninety thousand dollars a year per person. Um, again. The ki- I, I've, heard, I've been talking about this for about 10 years or more, and I've you know, heard pros and cons, and, and uh, the main thing that people you know, worry about when you talk about a system like this is uh, desperate people you know, rushing to give a kidney and then regretting it afterwards. And that is a scenario that no one wants to see. But that's why um, the plan that I mentioned, and there are variants of this, but it, it has a key feature, which is that the rewards are not given by the person who needs the, the kidney. They're given by a third party. In this case, it would probably be the, the federal government or some approved charity. So it's not given by the person who needs the kidney, because, of course, that would disadvantage people who couldn't afford this. It'd be given by a third party, and it wouldn't be given in the form of cash, because if you want to avert desperate people rushing to do something, you don't offer what desperate people want, which is immediate cash. So that's the basic uh, uh, outline. Who would get the organs disproportionately? Well, it probably wouldn't be people in this room, because we have, rel- unlike me, a lot of people, most people have families who, and, and cousins and sisters and brothers who will do this for them. Um, and even now, it's Probably not people like us because if we really don't have brothers and sisters, we will we will probably go overseas. It's something we can afford. It's something I actually contemplated, but thank God, this f- friend came came uh, into hey, my life. Hey
2: Sally, can I just interject mm-hmm. something here? So. Um, uh, white people who go on dial, they're half as likely to go on dialysis as as, as a minority, or one third as likely as uh, African American. Yeah. But they're twice once they're on, they're twice as likely to get a kidney as a minority.
3: Yeah, yeah. So the, all the advantages are. Uh, I mean, it is a racialized problem. I'm not saying anything about <laughs> racism, but there's a racial dimension to this this problem. So uh, again, I've heard people talk about. Uh, dignity issues and exploitation, but when you think about it, right, if the people are well informed, if their health is protected, if we respect their capacity to make decisions in their own best interest, low income or not, in fact we don't even know who will want to participate in this kind of thing, granted I don't think it's hedge fund managers, but um, we don't necessarily know who will, that's something that would be interesting to study. Um, And if we express gratitude, you know, where's the threat to dignity and, and who's being exploited? So just to uh, sum up, uh, the model we have now, which is based on altruism, is, again, based on a lovely sentiment. But if you actually look at the uh, congressional transcripts from 1983 when actually it originated in the House and it was spearheaded by then Representative Al Gore, he talked about the possibility that volunteerism might not be enough and that we should consider incentives if it proves not to be enough. Well, it's proven not to be enough. And uh, we have to keep in mind that's just one model, it's just one way to do this is through altruism. And another way to explore, and I think we've reached the point where we seriously have to, is again, rewarding people who are willing to save the life of a stranger. Thanks.
2: Great, thanks. Hey, can I just ask uh, Sally and and, and Keith, just one question before we get going. What are the risks to people who donate their kidneys?
0: Well, pretty much throughout the country now, the the donor operation for live donors, it's done laparoscopically, which basically means you make these tiny little incisions. It's um, microsurgery um, with the um, thank you. Okay, yeah. So uh, it's basically made, um, you make these small incisions and you remove the kidney through a, um, a relatively small incision. <coughs> However, it's still major surgery. The major risk would still be bleeding or injury to something other than the kidney. However, um, over the many years that we've been doing this operation, the laparoscopic uh, donor nephrectomy will, uh, first uh, came into being in 1995. Uh, the outcomes have been really, really good, exceedingly safe. There have been some complications, but they are um, really rare. It's pretty much um, safer than almost any um, uh, large surgical operation. So. The risk to the donor is pretty small, like Sally alluded to. what we make people go through in order to be a donor is um, they have to go through a lot of tests, a lot of diagnostic studies so um even if even in this room, uh, only about one in four people that come forward to be a donor are actually approved because we are so stringent, and that's why the outcomes are so good
3: yeah. and people stay in the hospital for two to three days yeah about, um, about so it's eight eight not hours. a big. <laughs> I mean it is serious surgery. I don't mean to b- minimize it, but again, it's you're not you're in the hospital for a brief time.
2: Great. Thanks guys. Okay. So, uh Kurt, could you uh give us your uh share us with you? You want us to come up here you want. Okay. And Kurt, I just want to say that Keith really wasn't looking at you when he made the reference to <laughs> old uh, kidney donors. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Thank you. Um, so- I donated a kidney in 2014, so I, um, I, have a, I have a little scar about the size of my little finger around my navel, and that is the only way you can tell that I've uh, had, the, had the surgery, and it's really the only uh, the only lasting effect. You know, I live perfectly normally with my remaining kidney. Um, my health is fine. And uh, if there's anybody in the audience who's, who's thinking about donating, you know, I, I encourage you to uh, Think about it seriously, and I'd be happy to talk to you after this event about about uh, my experience. It's it's really it's a great thing to be able to help another person get off dialysis, which is which is life life prolonging, but for for many people can be frankly rather hellish. Um, What made me decide to donate? Uh, A few things. One is I I I have a uh, I have a friend, a good friend who was uh, a recipient of a transplanted kidney from his cousin. My supervisor at the Treasury Department where I work also uh, received a kidney from his sister. Uh, I should make the obligatory disclaimer that uh, I'm here in a purely personal capacity uh, and not representing the opinion of the Treasury Department or the federal government. Uh, I I also happen to live down the street from a dialysis center, which I pass every day on the way to and from work. And when it's open, the parking lot is always full. So, that, that, that's a very uh, a vivid reminder of how big the need is. Um, so, uh, as Dr. Melanson said, kidneys from living donors generally last longer in recipients than kidneys from deceased donors, and they also have a, uh, they also have a higher uh, chance, you know, when they go in, of being accepted by the, the donor's immune system rather than rejected and as has also been discussed so most most living donors are the relatives or friends of uh, somebody who needs a transplant unfortunately for a lot of people the kidneys of friends and relatives are not they're not compatible matches so so kidneys are you know, they're uh, analyzed along a number of dimensions to ensure that that when they are Transplanted, that they have a good a good chance of um, of, of working in the recipient, uh, and you know it, it it just happens that even you know, say even your even your sibling uh, or your um, or your child you know, might not be a good enough match. That was in fact the case with the, the woman who received my kidney. So her her uh, her daughter wanted to donate, but but she was not a good match for her mother, and I was was a better match. Um, So her daughter daughter, uh, very um, generously wound up donating to somebody else. There are are around 100,000 people on the waiting list for a kidney, but there are fewer than 200 uh, living donors a year who are not friends or relatives of uh, people who need transplants. So you know, the way that I think of the problem is that to end the shortage of organs for transplants, we need to, you know, to increase the number of stranger-to-stranger transplants vastly, and not just tenfold, but you know, 50-fold or 100-fold. Um, how are we going to do that? Well, for a generation now, we've tried relying only on um, only on uncompensated donation. And clearly it has not worked. <laughs> Otherwise, we would not have this long list. So that's why I think it is, it is time to try compensation in some form. There are a lot of different forms that it can take, as uh, Sally Sattel just you know, uh, outlined. Um, and I think it's, you know, we, we, need, we need, but we need to, to try various approaches and see what's effective. Um, question that often comes up is, Is it moral to compensate people to donate kidneys? The way I think of it is that, in fact, offering compensation is the main way that we cooperate with strangers. So we compensate strangers to supply us with the water we drink, the bread we eat, the medicines we take when we're sick, uh, and many other things that make our lives possible and pleasant. If we were to expect those things to be free, there would be severe shortages of them just as there are severe shortages of, of, of kidneys and, and other organs for transplant. So to me, the um, the question that we should be asking is whether it is moral to forbid people from trying the same approach that works so well in so many other areas of our life. Hey,
2: can I ask uh, one, one question? Yes. Could you just talk a little bit about the article you wrote with uh, Sally uh, last month?
4: Uh, well, since, since Sally actually did, more of it than I did. I think she would Uh be better. I'm going to turn that back on her.
3: Oh, that was the article. um, There was a Washington Post article about, I have to admit, I didn't reread it for this, but the general thrust was that there was a disabled young man in um, (coughs) Philadelphia needed a heart. And basically, he had been declined the transplant by the University of Pennsylvania. And they had some reasons. You know always wonder how much could be disclosed in an article. So maybe there were some legitimate reasons that they had some questions about whether he could really comply with the, <clears throat> the regimen of immunosuppressants and other medications after the transplant. And, and that was debatable. But the point, the larger point was we, we, wouldn't be, we wouldn't be essentially rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, which is what we do uh, when we have a list of and a way to manage a scarce resource that inevitably makes winners and losers out of people. So that was, uh, again, an entree into this l- larger uh, question of why are we stuck in this system that is so clearly inadequate uh, when you need a, a stent, you know, for a—for a—, uh, for a um, cardiac you know for a coronary artery (laughs) that's not rationed we have enough of those we don't ration anything else in this medical system except uh, organs and it's because there's not enough of them Um, we know when we pay for things as you alluded to Adam Smith um, we um, we get more of them we pay for plasma in this country we're the world's largest exporter of blood plasma and we don't pay for blood and we have we have shortages Um, anyway and on and on and on Uh, again if I were there when Al Gore was you know when they were debating this bill I probably would have said yeah go for altruism first as well I don't fault them for that and I applaud him for noting that it might not be enough but um, we've again we've gotten to that point where uh, the experiment has been done and altruism is an uh, I'll say a qualified failure which is not to say that some people do not get organs off the list. They do seventeen thousand. You said, "Oh, that doesn't even that that was every that was total." So what? Thirteen thousand yeah. organs, twelve thousand, I think, deceased kidneys. Yeah, last 10, year. Yeah. Um, so, which is not to say no one benefits, uh, but the wait can, in D.C. the weight can be between five and ten years, and if you're over fifty, you're not going to sur- the chances of you surviving that long are not good. So again, it's time to time to try something else.
4: So can I add something here? Which is uh, uh, altruism. Uh, altruism is great. Uh, everything, everything that people do for altruistic reasons can continue you know, under the under the kind of uh, the kind of system that we've been talking about. So you know, there's no, there's nothing to to prevent it. Uh, it's just that you know, it has been not uh, not enough to generate an, an adequate supply you know, for all the people. Who, uh, who need organs for transplant.
3: Great,
2: Great. thank you very much. Uh, Jeremy?
5: I'll stand up. Thanks, let me, uh, let me start by talking about why my boss got interested in this. And there are a few basic facts that got the congressman wanting to work on this issue. First, more people die waiting for kidney transplant every year than died in, in Iraq and Afghanistan wars combined. The second thing is, even for those on life-saving dialysis, hundreds of thousands of people, they're going multiple times a week, sitting for hours in a chair. 90% of those folks can no longer hold down full-time employment, huge impacts on quality of life. And this is hundreds of thousands of people in all of our congressional districts. And the third thing is, back when dialysis, a wonderful life-saving treatment was, uh, was, um, was invented, Hospitals would actually have panels to decide who would live and who would die and get this treatment. Congress rightly decided that they were going to start paying for dialysis so this awful choice wouldn't have to be made. It was envisioned to be a a moderate program. This is ballooned to be 7% of the Medicare budget right now. We're talking tens of billions of dollars per year, and this number is growing dramatically, both as the cost of dialysis go up and the number of people of dialysis that grow up. And as dialysis has gotten better, people are on it for longer. It is incredibly expensive. The cost of an organ transplant is dramatically lower than the cost of dialysis. So an organ transplant is gonna save a life, it's gonna end suffering, and it's gonna save a huge amount of federal dollars. So that's why the Congressman decided to address this issue. So the other reason Congress is involved is there are a lot of contributing factors. One of the huge contributing factors, as Sally noted, is the term valuable consideration in NODA, a bill passed in 1984. Congress outlawed any form of valuable consideration. So this has basically completely stopped the ability of the entire research community to look at different ways that we can increase the prevalence of kidney donation. So our bill, which we introduced last Congress, which we're going to reintroduce shortly, does two main things. The first thing it does is offer more clarity on the definition of valuable consideration. Unfortunately, if you offer something that is considered valuable consideration, this is prison time, this is a huge fine. So people are understandably err on the side of caution. There are nonprofits out there, this isn't government money, This is nonprofit, this is charity money that wanna reimburse for travel, reimburse for childcare expenses, reimburse for hotels, reimburse for a whole host of expenses, missed work, that are related to the organ donation. Now that's great and it's considered legal, but a lot of these things, people are worried fall in a gray area. And if you've given something and all of a sudden, you know this travel is beyond what was the basic cost, it's valuable consideration, that's a felony. So what our bill does is just go through and clarifies for everyone what is valuable consideration. I think this is non-controversial, but this is just to make sure both the organizations helping the donors do their wonderful work and the donors themselves are rest assured they're not about to commit a felony in in providing this altruistic act. The second thing this bill does is allow for pilot programs to test the effectiveness of non-cash incentives. Now, we have put in place all of the protections you would want to make sure there is no exploitation, this is not a free market, all of the, the worst-case scenarios that those are concerned with valuable consideration put forward. This has to be government-run, not necessarily federal government, local or state also work, but to make sure there's no private entity come up, government-run pilot program. It's non-cash. The reason we do non-cash is we wanna make sure that these incentives are tied to the donor as much as possible. If you give someone, a, we don't want anyone pressured to do this so that money would flow to someone else. If you're talking about giving someone healthcare for 10 years, student loan forgiveness, these incentives, that's gonna make sure that the person doing the do- donation is tied to actually getting the reward that they earn for what they've done. We have ethical review boards looking at these things to make sure that this is all within the general bounds was considered ethical. So what we're envisioning is hopefully several different pilot programs, no longer than five years each, to actually test the effect of what would a valuable consideration, what would health insurance, tuition reimbursement, long-term retirement account contributions, all of these things, what would that actually do to the effect of donation? As we've heard from this panel, we're at a crisis point, we're gonna have 18 people today die waiting for an organ and Congress is a huge Mm -hmm. barrier in actually testing out what could the possible solution. So what we'd like to do is allow for Congress to get out of the way just a little bit to allow the academic community um, to test out to see what would work and then hopefully come back to Congress and say, here's a program that actually works. One last example, Pennsylvania, the, the state where my boss is from, in 1994 passed a law that would give an honorarium if you donated a deceased loved one's kidneys or or organ. Sorry, any organ, you would get a three hundred dollar honorarium to go towards funeral costs. This is just mostly to thank people for the donation and maybe to help some people um, make the decision to donate their loved one's organs. But that law was deemed to potentially fall afoul of valuable consideration. It was never implemented, so we have no idea if that law, which is still on the books in Pennsylvania, actually might have increased some um, donation. And for every donor, deceased donor, that donates their um, organs, that's up to eight lives saved. So, you know, easily hundreds of people could have been saved if we just let this law um, at least be tested to see the effect. So um, I hope uh, those of you who work for members or organizations um, might want to either endorse or co-sponsor our bill um, to help Congress get out of the way just a little bit and and hopefully save some lives and some money.
2: right. Jeremy, thank you so much.